It's four o'clock. You're listening to Perfect Health on Elastic FM with Elaine Godley. Let's start with a bit of Dire Straits and Twisting by the Pool. So uh, here I am joined in the studio today by um, the delightful Paul Lowe from Paul Lowe Hearts. And um, Paul has a wonderful podcast called Speaking from Our Hearts. You've interviewed me a few times for that now, Paul, haven't you? Yes, I have indeed, yeah. Uh, so welcome to the studio. And uh, you describe yourself these days as a purpose mentor. Describe mm. what a purpose mentor is. Uh, what it, it says what it does on the tin. I help people find their purpose. And purpose meaning? Um, okay, in simple terms, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Okay, so um, what gets you out of bed in the morning, Paul? Helping people find their purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, around the mulberry bush. Well, that, that's it. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, um, when you kind of really dig down deep about, you know, why am I here? I think it's Deepak Chopra's four big questions. Who am I? Uh, you know, what, why am I here? Um, you know, what is my purpose and what am I grateful for? And they are, I think, questions that all of us at some time or other ask ourselves. And, you know, that, that's certainly through my pain and darkness and suffering over the years, been very, uh, very much underneath everything. You know, why is this happening? Why to me when I was in more sort of, uh, dare I say, victim mode? And, you know, that's been going on for decades and um, laid a very solid foundation now for, the, for understanding the massive importance of purpose in our lives, direction, you know, what is that spark that gives us that, I'm going to get out of bed today rather than just stay there and, and don't progress? It's, it's, a, it's, um, it's a word that not everybody would even have in their vocabulary. What's my purpose? Not many people think about it. But in the coaching world, it's, it's a word that often crops up. Mm. So um, when I say to people, you know, what, what's your purpose in life? That, that's, there's a lot of people that's a bit too big. Yeah. Um, so, you know, breaking it down day by day, you're having having a reason to get out of bed in the morning. It might be simply to feed the cat or you yeah. know, get get the make the lunch for for somebody or, um, you know, go to the hairdressers, whatever it is. But every day you need to have a purpose. Otherwise, you, as you say, you'd literally stay in bed all day, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I got a great insight from that from a from a guy called Jim Britt, who was uh, was actually Tony Robbins's coaching mentor for five years. And I asked Jim the same question around purpose. And then he said, quite simply, more or less what you've just said, it's what you're doing here and now in this moment. That's your purpose. It's what you're doing, whether you're doing it tomorrow or the day after. Well, that's another story. Um, so yes, it is a, I suppose, in modern jargon about living in the moment, and and as you say, what you are doing at that precise moment, because that's your purpose, and you learn that actually is this serving me or not, as the case may be, and that purpose changes. It it does change, certainly change for me over the years. Um, I've never, but well, I remember when we did the podcast together, you asked me about my purpose, and mm. um, I haven't really ever had a purpose up to now I now have a purpose helping people to beat cancer and serious illness yeah um and that's that's now a lifelong thing for me lifelong purpose but um I just enjoyed myself every everything I've done has been absolutely wonderful um you mentioned about victim mode pain and suffering and victim mode so t- tell us about that how, how have you come from from that to, to where you are now Paul 
a very crude and hard road. Um, fumbling, prodding, poking, sledgehammering, you name it, um, to the point where, you know, decades later I look back on it and the work I do now is actually inspiring other other people to say, well, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, you know, I think by having somebody in your life um, as a coach, a mentor, a guide, call them what you will. And I'm not necessarily talking about uh, a professional capacity. Um, I think for me, just really, really simplifying it is knowing that somebody actually really does care. And I mean genuinely care. And the power of that is immense. You know, a lot of the stuff around that purpose um, j of journey is around, you know, this whole conversation about this, this polarization between the two dominant forces in our life and that's love and fear and it's about stripping those out and just you know that metaphoric arm around the shoulder to say actually people do care but don't just tell them prove it you know and that can be real simple things you know just smiling at a stranger and just giving somebody 30 seconds you know having a chat or whatever, real simple things like this that we, oh, I haven't got time, life gets in the way or whatever, oh, that won't make any difference. Well, yeah, it, it, it will, and, and it does. You know, random acts of kindness is, is another, you, you mentioned earlier on, <laughs> Elaine, about, you know, terminology within the, the personal development industry, and that, that's, that's a, you know, real big buzzword, isn't it? Oh, well, you've got to do your random and your gratitude journal. <laughs> which, you know, are good things, but, you know, to, to sort of use that alternative language, just, do you know what, just give people a bit of time a day because that's, the knock-on effect is, is massive. It really is. So, oh, sorry, I've got a bit of frog in my throat. Let's have some music. Wonderful and an appropriate song for you, Paul, actually, isn't it? I'm still standing after yeah. what you've been through. So so tell us a bit about what you have been through. Right, okay. So when I was um, seven, my mother, uh, who was divorced from my from my dad, um, met a guy next door that lived, lived next door to us. Uh, and a year later, she married him. And we moved from an inner city council estate to out into the country. And not being a country boy, I hated every second of it. And uh, I was away from my mates. I was away from the the big passion in my life, which was Nottingham Forest Football Club, um, playing football and all that kind of basics that, that kids do at that age. But that was nothing really compared to what then uh, materialised because within a few months of the, the new marriage, he started to show his true colours. And what I mean by that is uh, violent tendencies, abuse. Um, yeah, he was not a nice guy, to which uh, eventually I, I wrote a book about him, feature, not featured in him, but obviously alluded to him, and I gave him the app name of The Beast. Um, because the cruelty, the violence, the sickening, horrendous behaviour that went towards uh, me and my mother just escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where I couldn't cope. My mother used to defend me uh, or try to, which it did, you know, cost her a beating. This was daily. This was not one-offs. Um, and as I say, that just got worse and worse and worse. 
I found my comfort in two avenues. Uh, one, my mother was a secret drinker. And as early as just past my 10th birthday, I found a secret stash. And I, too, started helping myself to uh, the demon drink. Tots of sherry, tots of whiskey, uh, to numb the pain, basically. And the other one, my other crutch, was Nottingham Forest and the fervent belief that one day I would wear with pride that red shirt. Um, you know, the power of beliefs, because it did sustain me in the main. But that, that, that belief system was tested severely um, on the 23rd of March 1974, when Forrest had suffered another defeat to a team that play in black and white. I, I latterly termed it the black and white curse because two days prior to that at Everton's Goodison Park, they'd lost to Newcastle United 1-0 in the second replay of the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. So in the space of 48 hours, my world had been destroyed and self-talk around, how can you desert me? How can you destroy me? How can you betray me? was how I saw my beloved football club, which was absolutely ludicrous. But a valuable lesson was has subsequently been learned in terms of giving your power away to something outside yourself, which is what I did. And um, I attempted suicide. Something passed through me that day, that moment that said no. And I, what I now term as having the consciousness to say, I will fight for the underdog is exactly what, what I did at 13 and a half. And so went, I was being taught violence at the hands of my stepfather. Physical pain became very, very easy to endure. That's nothing. Emotional pain, that, that's a different kettle of fish. Never really come to terms with that. And um, so that, yeah, that, that was the journey. That was the, uh, that was the scene that was set at a very early age for, for years of dark, dark destruction. Well, wow, 13 and a half years old, um, that's that's pretty powerful stuff. And 13 and a half years old, the people are really impressionable, aren't they? Young teenagers, very impressionable. So you had this um, whole upbringing that was um, particularly ho- horrific. And then um, the football that you'd um, sort of set your heart on, it all, all came crashing down. So difficult. And you were drinking alongside all of that. Yeah, because when I was, uh, well, officially old enough to get in pubs, but I was actually getting in pubs at 14 and a half, 15, um, and drinking, inverted commas, properly. Um, you know, so my, my drinking addiction was, was getting out of hand very, very quickly. It was, it was yeah, uh, very quickly. And obviously was uh, fueling the distorted thinking that went with my beliefs and all the emotional turmoil that went with that. Gosh. So um, how did you turn around then from this awful situation? What was the, what was the wake-up call that you had to, to, to start moving towards a better life? Or did it carry on for, for quite a while? Carried on for decades. Um, it was my black and white uh, approach, which, you know, yeah, again, it's so easy with the work I've done on myself to look back and, you know, understand what really went off over, over all those years. Um, but at the time, it was pure, pure, pure survival, pure survival. I didn't have the emotional, the intellectual ability to rationalise or understand what was going on. I was just surviving. And I did. I would do things that worked or seemed to work. And my strategy 
to use a, a modern day term within that was I would go on a mad bender for months, maybe six months on and six months off. Hence the reinforcement of my black and white years. And what that would mean is when I was on it, I would drink anything to get a hit. Um, and when I was off it and I would cut it dead, I would just go completely to the other end of the scale. I'd train hard physically. I'd be out in the morning doing road work. I'd be in gyms. I'd be playing sport. Uh, mentally, I'd be taking on qualifications, doing loads of work for charity, that kind of stuff, um, What, which I, I suppose is quite patronising now, but fighting for the underdog. And my world was literally this stark polarisation of black and white, the white being the good, the black being the dark. So when you say decades, um, without wishing to be rude, you're you're about my age now, Paul, I think. 37, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so so you went th- basically through your whole sort of adulthood, your teenage years, your adulthood, your, all, all the times where people would be, you know, saving up, getting married, engaged, married, mm. children, et cetera, et cetera. Did, did you do any of that? At all, all of it. Um, you know, and, and I love talking about this with... With immense pride. I mean, my, you know, we spoke off here about my choice of records, which were all invariably around love songs and the, and the power of the feminine energy, because the biggest gratitude I have in my life, other than the life, life lessons that's been, been bestowed upon me, is actually the amazing feminine energy stroke women that's been in my life. And I still speak immensely fondly about all of them, even though, you know, some of them, my ex-wife now, you know, we've been divorced since, what, 93. Um, My my relationships have invariably been long-term ones, um, and there's been four that I would speak of. um, And these women are, in, in, in my book, of the very, very, very highest order because of what they had to put up with with me, um, because I was still wild, um, you know, I was getting in fights. I'd be locked up in, in police cells and all this kind of stuff. And I'd jeopardise, you know, that I got this self-destruct button that things were going well, but I couldn't cope with things going well. I didn't understand normality, so I had to sabotage it. Uh, and they stood by me and they stood by me till I'd, I'd come out my black phase and we'd build it up again. Absolutely amazing women. Truly, truly remarkable women, of which there have been four um, so yes, I did the marriage thing, three kids, um, long-term engagements to the others, which for whatever reason didn't quite work out. Uh, after you know, and, I, and I'm talking ten years apiece on these relationships. I'm not talking sort of five minutes together. So yeah, that they have been immensely powerful influences and stabilizing influences when my internal world was still uh, very very unstable. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Nottingham Forest and um, <clears throat> managed to find the song, uh, 1974 song that uh, they sang with Paper Lace. Uh, we've got the whole world in our hands. Here we go. Knott's Forest, um, you were just saying off mic that um, you left them. What happened? I divorced. Well, I didn't divorce them because, you know, you can never divorce the true love of your life um what happened was a bit like 74 when i'd got this mindset of how can you betray me i'd got this also when they started doing well in the uh 
towards the late 70s, you know, they won the league um, and they got promoted and, and all that kind of stuff. And then the two European Cups towards the uh, the turn of the decade, it's like, mm, you don't need me now. You're okay. So I didn't bother going and I lost that emotional attachment or so I thought. That sense of belonging. Yes. Yeah, it's like you're no longer an underdog. You're a big noise now in, in world and European football. You've won the European Cup twice. And it's like, you know, I think if I'm honest about it, I mean, obviously the mind plays tricks after so many years, but there was almost that sense of you've got too big for your boots. <laughs> Stay back down at the second division level where I know you belong. Well, the reality is, no, that's where my mind was, mm. where I belong, not them. And so there was this old sort of, as I say, this belief system, this old association with, who do you think you are? I don't want to be part of you anymore. You're too big for your boots. I'm off. I'll leave you with it. Um, and that happened for a few years. So did you go to another club? Did you find another oh, place no. to that, belong? Oh, Elaine, that's, no. To say that would have been adulterous is, doesn't even touch <laughs> it. No. So, so your life then, um, you had no sense of belonging, but you did have your family at that point. You had your wife and children. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I got married when I was 23. Um, I felt actually that I had to get married um, because I was wild. I'd got all this, this very black and white way uh, of, of carrying on and if I saw injustice or perceived injustice particularly towards a woman or a child then I set myself up as judge jury and executioner I got myself in a lot of trouble and so I actually know that if I hadn't got married and, and, and settled down or tried to settle down I would have actually killed killed somebody and that's not surprising that when you look back on the way you were brought up you, that, that was your life wasn't it, it was absolutely in fact, my vow, when I walked out the, uh, and I use the term loosely, the family home to, to the beast was, and I would bear in mind I'm you know, barely 14, was one day I will return and I will kill you. And uh, my mother said to me, I can still see it now. Uh, what did you say, son? And I said, I didn't say anything, mum. I didn't say, you did, what did you say? Mm -hmm. And I just looked at him and he knew because there was an incident that had preceded that, which led to sort of me going to, to live back with, with my grandmother. Uh, but my mother stayed with him for, for a few more years. And I, and I subsequently asked her, why did she put up with that? Words fail me. Why did she? And she said, and this is a very, very old school um, way of, of thinking, I made my bed, son, so mm. I had to lie on it. That's how older generations were, weren't they? Yeah. So um, is he still alive? He is. And the irony, and isn't, isn't life ironic at times, that I've been staying in accommodation uh, when I come back to the UK um, that actually is 50 yards from, from that house. And I can, it's like a, a sheltered accommodation through a, a mutual friend. And I can actually look out the communal garden over the wall into the backyard where most of my torture took place. Gosh. And, and how do you feel about that? I feel great. And I'm so I'm so grateful for the lesson because that's galvanized me and given me the understanding to to be able to do the work that I do with, you know, with people that have got, um, you know, these very uh, conditioned views and uh, uh, ways of life. And I understand it. I do understand, you know, and they are very, very thin lines that, that we have in life that, you know, there for the grace, we, we could end up down that way of thinking. You've chosen... 
a song by Elton John. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Why did you choose that one, Paul? Mainly because of, I mean, that that's the, the timing of that, Elaine, is great because of, you know, this is that sincere and heartfelt gratitude to these, these special four feminine souls, these women, because everything I put them through and I just didn't, my male ego, my pride wouldn't allow me to say sorry. It's like you either stick with me or you don't. And they stuck with me. And I suppose what I wanted to say, but I didn't know how, um, was was sorry. Here we are. You're saying it now for them, Elton John. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. It's happened again. We're having such a good conversation off mic. We forget. I'm forgetting to press the buttons and things. <laughs> Very miss of me. I do apologise, listeners. Uh, welcome wherever you are listening to uh, Perfect Health on Elastic FM with Elaine Godley. We've got Paul Lowe in the studio from Paul Lowe Hearts. And Paul has a very busy, active uh, podcast called Speaking From Our Hearts. So if you have a look on um, which which platforms are you on? I think most of them are you. Oh, Paul? most of them: Stitcher, iTunes. Uh, the, you know, I mean, I'm not a, a technical guy, but um, I think there's about ten, twelve different platforms. That the main ones, I, I believe, uh, Omni, Stitcher, and iTunes. They're certainly on those and oh, host all So those. if people just go onto those and then look up uh, "Speaking from Our Hearts," they'll find you, will they? Uh, yes, they will. Yes. Or paullohearts.com, is it your website? Um, paullohearts.com is the website, yes. Fabulous. So you're a purpose mentor and we've been talking about um, your background and how you've you've got to experience life. And uh, in experience experiencing life, you're then able to say that you've walked the talk, haven't you? I mean, and you mm. do on a day-to-day basis, you walk your talk. Yes. And um, I find that it's really important when you're engaging a, a coach or a mentor that you're liaising with somebody who understands you properly who who you know from a, a really deep heartfelt point of view they know how you feel you know they can truly empathize with you rather than being condescending and trying to imagine what you've been through you truly have been through some some awful things um so you had this uh, uh interesting background and um you had your children and various different relationships and so on so how 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 did you manage to get to the next step? So you're you're very enlightened. You're now um, on a spiritual path. You're this wonderful uh, purpose mentor for people. So how did you jump from where you were to, to where you are now? You must have done a lot of learning and studying. Yes. Uh, yeah, oh, an immense amount. Yeah. I mean, I've traveled the world. I've worked with some of the, the, top, the top names in the world. Um, but that has been... <sighs> That's been that emergence has taken place, as I say, over decades. It wasn't like I sat down and said, Right, okay, now I've got a plan and this is what I'm going to do. And one plus one will equal two, two plus two. It wasn't none of that. In fact, just the opposite. I can look back now on it and make some real sense of it um, and put those lessons into practice when I, you know, when I'm when I'm working with clients. Um, So, how did that evolve? I think. From that black and white, that very crude black and white existence, when I was in my white phase, it was it was about giving back and it was about fighting for the underdog, which was my terminology, my mindset at the time. And, you know, as I say, particularly towards women or kids where I saw or perceived to see injustice. 
um, loads of charitable work and and within that obviously if you're doing that kind of um, that kind of work there's an old saying if you're in the barbers long enough you'll end up getting your hair cut well I ended up getting my hair cut quite a bit um, because I was in my white phases in that backyard so you pick stuff up and then um, I can remember coming across the work of Dr Stephen Covey the late great Dr Stephen Covey and it just blew me away um, and that was at the time when I was, um, I'd started an academic journey. I got myself in quite a bit of trouble with the law and I had a make or break decision. So, um, you know, by the skin of my teeth, I got away with that. Well, I didn't get away with it, but, um, it sent me down a different path. And it was like one of those watershed moments. Well, what are you going to do now then, Paul? Um, and I went into education because for all my life, people had been saying, God, you're such a brainy bugger. What are you doing wasting your life? Well, actually, I'm surviving. I'm not what I've, you know, do you think this is my life by choice? But there again, I didn't have the ability, either emotionally or intellectually, to, to work my way through it. I was fighting my way through it. And, um, you know, Stephen Covey fascinated me. And that, you know, I often refer to him affectionately as my my first mentor. So it's kind of been a, you know, okay, so I learn a bit more because we don't know what we don't know. Now my eyes are a little bit opened. Okay, now I'm curious. So tell me some more. But the reality was I couldn't sustain it because there was deep-rooted deservedness issues in there, massive strangulating, limiting beliefs and all kinds of stuff. Even when I went to university uh, in 92, I sabotaged it. I deliberately failed all my exams because I believed that boys from Bestwood, where I came from, a sort of inner city council, you, you, we don't go to university. We go to prison. That's what we do. We go to prison, not university. So there was all this stuff still going on. So that was the kind of the toxicity that laid beneath the surface for many, many, many years. So, so how did you get, because you, you've done a master's programme, if you didn't do exams at school, how did you get on a master's programme? Because I did an access course at People's College, which was, uh, you know, one of the prominent colleges in Nottingham then, uh, in 91. It's like a 12-month crash course for people that's got the ability, uh, intellectually, academically, but didn't, for whatever reason in their past, um, get the, piece, the necessary pieces of paper to go to university. So that was a great time. Um, that was coincided at a time when I'd uh, actually left my my wife. We'd parted, and I was living in a bed sit. And you know, I was a, I was a mature student. Just went on this I don't know this journey of discovery about you know who who I really was. As I say, that was in ninety one, um, and the journeys just escalated from there. You know, you turn down a path, and you find out with a relationship or or a situation that's not quite for me or I take the learning out of it and I go down a different path. And so long as we keep going forward, I think that's that's the way of life. That is the path of life. I think that's necessary because um, life is moving forward. The world is revolving. Yep. And if we're not moving forward, by definition, we're going backwards, aren't we? Yep. So um, there we go. So what, what was your master's in? Uh, in quality management, because quality management, I mean, when I did it, it was essentially uh, around processes. Um, but I had this kind of eureka. Well, if you can apply that to processes and systems, why can't you apply it to people? 
And that really did kind of set me on an upward trajectory in terms of investing in research and this whole, okay, so live it. Because I'm very, very big on, I think you alluded to it earlier on, Elaine, about prove it. Don't just talk about it, prove it. Lead from the front. Because I have this thing about leadership and so many so-called leaders and they've got a badge and a label and a fancy title and and they, they tell you what to do but very few actually show you what to do, mm. particularly from that compassion <clears throat> point of view, that metaphoric arm round the shoulder, that, that presence when they look you in the eye and say, I feel your pain, but do you know what? We're going we're gonna to go on a journey and we're going to take that pain away. Come hell or high water, we're going to take that pain away and we're going to do what we need to do. The operative word being we. You're not on your own anymore. Going back to the sense of belonging, we all need to belong somewhere, Absolutely. whether it's with a person, a family, a tribe, you know, whatever. Yep. So how were you earning a living all this time? What, what was your, did you have a trade? Um, yeah, I mean, by, by trade, uh, I was a telecoms engineer. Um, but I mean, I've always, I think, been quite entrepreneurial. So certainly when I was going through uni, I'd, you know, uh, I found out I'd got a bit of an academic prowess and certainly through the, the more mature students, cause you've got, you know, by definition, there was a lot of access, um, students on there, you know, uh, mature students. And I used to do the, I used to do a lot of their work for them. And charge them. Oh, wow. <laughs> which used to get my beer money. Mm. So, you know, my pattern being what it was, I was never, ever a moderate drinker. I was never a moderate, I don't think, in anything in life. Uh, it was either all or nothing, which was my whole mindset, um, a survival mindset. And um, so, yeah, the, you know, there, there was anything I could do to make uh, an IAS and to add honest living, I would do. And I did. And I'd save it up and then go on a mad bender because I knew it invariably I'd be on. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Uh, and it wasn't until latter years that I, I realised the importance of actually breaking that uh, belief cycle. You mentioned Stephen Covey, mm. and um, I presume you're talking about his uh, very famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, yeah. um, which I'm sure you must have read. Yeah. Um, there's so many things in that book that you can relate to life you know time management and yep. um you know um gratitude and and why we do things and the order we do things and so on and so forth it's it's a book that i highly recommend um to the listeners if you haven't already come across it seven habits of highly successful people by stephen covey what other books have you read that um, have inspired you or, or oh, led you blimey. down the path um pro- Blimey, where do I go with that one? I think one that probably, well, let me single one out, and it's the one that I've more recently read, and it's Gabriel Bernstein's The Universe Has Your Back. I found it to be immensely profound, um, alongside uh, another recent one, uh, Michael Singer, um, The Untethered Soul. You know, these are, they're really good books. It's interesting that I'm also... Um, working with a guy at the moment, um, well, two guys actually in America. Through my, I've met through my podcasting. Um, fascinating, fascinating insights. Uh, Mark Hoy, spelt with a C M A R C. Mark Hoy um, has wrote a book, and I've interviewed him about it, as many other things called Lasting Happiness. And he found his happiness and the success to happiness on the back of serving sixteen years in jail. Goodness. Five years in a Shanghai, what he called the Shanghai Hilton. And you can imagine the, 
the 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 deprivation for one for you know just one single word that went with that and then 11 years in an american jail um around lasting happiness and the other one um from california is mark gober an end to upside down thinking which is essentially that consciousness lives on after our death and that's really set the cat amongst the pigeons uh amongst the scientists, the philosophers and all the eminent people. But his work's been highly, highly rubber stamped by some people in high places. So this is the kind of um, the work um, that I'm into now. But one of my favourite books, in fact, I've just lent it to my daughter, borrowed it, lent. I always get those two mixed up and don't really get bogged down on you, the difference. You loaned it to your I loaned daughter. it, yeah. Um, notes from a friend. Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. It was written in the earliest, it was very early days. Now, obviously, Tony Robbins has, has come on immensely to the point where I think he's generally recognised now, love him or loathe him, as one of the top coaches in the world. And this book, and it's only a, you know, probably an hour's read, but the principles and the beliefs and the strategies that's in that very brief snapshot are still what he propounds today. But obviously he expands on them and now he does volumes of books. But I like that book for its absolute simplicity. Wonderful. And that's, that's as you say, that's, that's an early book of his, wasn't it? Yes, yes. It, it took me a while to um, appreciate Tony Robbins because um, it, it, and it took me a while to realise why it took me a while. <laughs> because when I look at him, he was the first person. Remember we had the teeth whitening yes. back in the day? I can't remember when that came about to be fashionable. But he was the first person I'd seen. And I couldn't, couldn't figure out why was it. I Just looking at him really irritated me. And it's his great big shiny white teeth. Yeah. And um, I still... I still don't like looking at the man but he talks sense you know he, he he talks a lot of sense and he's helped you know millions of people probably now worldwide doesn't he so yeah well yeah. I actually studied as part of my coaching development my professional development I actually did um invested in his strategic intervention coaching program and and passed that you know as another string to my bow because you know, love him or loathe him, as I've already said, his style undoubtedly gets results. It, it can be, you know, particularly the strategic in intervention is what it says. He will strategically intervene to get you out of that place of pain or more more importantly, suffering. Um, and, you know, and so if you want big results, you've got to take big actions. And he will do it and he will use language that will shock uh, But the psychology of what he's doing is is tried and tested beyond description. Marvellous. Okay, we're going to have a couple of back-to-back -back, um, songs now. We've got um, probably appropriate, this first one, um, Just the Way You Are by Bruno Mars, followed by Walk of Life by Dire Straits, both topics uh, relevant to what we're talking about today. So uh, here we go. So, Paul, you're um, talking about how you got into education and talking about various different books that you've read and that still guide you today. Um, what would you say to young people that were in your situation? So the young people of today, um, what message would you give them about um, purpose and life? And is there a like a couple of nuggets that you can throw out to them? Yeah, um, and uh, you know we was talking about Tony Robbins, and it's you know as much as I'd like to sort of claim um, the origin of this, and it's your past does not define your future. It's a stepping stone. It's a learning process. Whatever that was then, whoever we were then, we're not that person. You know, life changes so quickly. 
We, we can't see that because we're immersed in the, the thick of our emotions and, you know, for me, victimhood and, you know, the world doesn't understand why is it always me? Um, and, and I understand that, you know, I've been speaking, still speaking to so many people, and particularly young people that, you know. And the other thing is to know that somewhere somebody does care. You know, I think it's very easy. And I, as I say, I did it for decades to get embroiled in this negative. The world's a horrible place. It's full of hatred. It's full of vile toxicity and all that. Well, actually, yeah, that's one side of the coin if you if you choose to see that and believe that. But the reality is it is actually a beautiful place. And that change comes from within. So rather than changing the outside world, change yourself within and go on that journey and find somebody or something to believe in that will serve you. And that, from my knowledge and experience and everything that I've found on the journey, will come from the heart. It won't come from the head. It will come from the heart. Following, following our intuition, I think, is a, is a big thing that few of us take notice of. How many times have we said, oh, damn, I felt that was wrong, or I just, just had an inkling that I should have done X, Y, Z, and I, you know, look what's happened now sort of thing. We, we tend to get in our own way, don't we? We talk ourselves out of things. We're conditioned. We're conditioned to do that because there's so much pressure from the media, from our peers, from our parents, do it this way, do as you're told, blah, 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 all this, that, and the other, and you just do it. I mean, from an early age, you know, as, as kids, just do as you're told. Think about those words. Just do as you are told. So you do as you're told. Nobody ever said, well, actually, is that right? Because you just do as you're told. You know, when people like our parents or, you know, my own mother, she did the best she could do from her own level of awareness at that given moment in time. Um, she was struggling with her own demons. But, you know, for me, as I say, growing up, do as you're told. I did as I was, well, I actually, no, that's a lie. I didn't do as I was told because I was a rebel. But I was a rebel, what I perceived to be, with a course from a very early age. So I absolutely didn't do as I was told, particularly with authority. And I've still got that sort of, uh, I will question authority because people, and I go back to that leadership, who are you to tell us that this, you can recommend, you can suggest, you can encourage Hopefully inspire, but don't tell us that that your solution is is the only way or the best way. Let's go on the voyage yeah. of discovery and find there's, out for ourselves. There's always many ways, you know, there's several ways to skin a cat was what my mum and dad used mm. to say. Um, and recently in the news, there's been uh, information about these pupil referral units. They're actually increasing pupil referral units, but because of the horrendous uh, increase in knife crime in the in the UK in recent um, recent months there's a, a lot of uh, people saying that pupil referral units so where kids have been slung out of school gone into these special units the next st stage is prison mm. many years ago I um, worked as a consultant in education and I'd go into pupil referral units um, using the um, behavioural profiling tool that I've since become an expert in and I would be able to identify the behaviours of these students and typically they'd be around about 14, 15, 16 years old um, have chips on their shoulder um, and a bit like your story, you know, rebel, you know, with a cause kind of thing. Mm. But nobody was listening. So yeah. as a result of their rebellious 
activities, they were falling foul of the teachers and so on and so forth. And of course, if there's an argument, the teacher's going to win, the kid, the kid isn't. And then I would... I would do the the profile questionnaire with them and some of them would only deal with me because they said I was the only one that knew, that that understood them. And all I'd done is fed their information back to them yeah. via this programme and a report. But seeing in black and white that actually they're, they're, they're not bad, you know, not bad children, they're not bad people um, and they've got some wonderful behavioural strengths, but they just need to be guided. Yeah. And it's what you were saying about having somebody, you know, the arm around the shoulder, uh, somebody, you know, the universe having your back, you know, however you want to phrase it. And um, I, I, I really feel for a lot of these kids in PRUs that they shouldn't be there, really shouldn't be there, a lot of them, I'm sure. I think there's this whole, you know, I, I go on record as saying as, as individuals, we are not broken, we don't need fixing, we're not machines, we're not robots, we're not cars that have broken down. So on an individual basis, I stand by that. If I can be self-contradicting on that in a collective sense, that I think the world is broken. I think the world collectively is crying out for a radical approach to life. You know, in all my years of struggle and, you know, research and, and everything that I've stood for and stood against, I've never known it as bad as it is now. I think there's a desperation that runs through this world now. You know, the knife crime that we're experiencing in the UK particularly, you know, um, is in effect of a deeper cause. And that cause, and this is oversimplifying, it goes, you know, this we could be here for hours and days just debating this. But it's just that, you know, stripping it down to the simplicity, because that's what I try and deal with, simplicity. Make it as black and white as you can. And, of course, it's never quite that simple. But it's that it's that contradiction between fear and love and today's youth are very very fearful because the identity has been stripped away i think society's rules are very lax so as much as i believe in immense love and compassion i also believe in strong boundaries and particularly with young people to let them know where they stand and to guide them and to believe that actually if you do cross the line there is a price to pay you know, it is the order of the jungle in a civilised society. And I think all that's been dramatically eroded over, you know, over in the recent past. And that's why people are growing up confused, you know, despondent. They, they, they lack identity. And we talked about the tribalism earlier on. You know, by belonging to a gang, you've got a sense of identity. The fact that what that gang's doing, you know, is probably completely wrong doesn't really matter because it's like turning the clock back all those years where you know we're in we're into basic raw hardcore survival and that's where in fact probably even worse i think we've gone from one extreme to the other from put up shut up don't speak till you're spoken to or the, you know the victorian um, yep. upbringing that our grandparents would have had yep. and to an extent our parents yeah um we've gone completely the other way so the young people as you say they are confused there's so much media pressure we've mm. got the internet now yeah which um people under 30 you know they've grown up with the internet they don't know any different so they have all this contradictory guidance so whatever you want to find you look on the internet and you'll find the answer, whether it's positive or negative. So if you're in a negative mind frame, you'll go and you'll find everything negative. If you're positive, you know, if you're looking for a certain answer for something. Um, and I think I wouldn't like to be a young person today, which um, I'm sounding like my mother now. And she used to say the same. 
um, in in her in her time. I think you will. Yeah, I mean, I think on a superficial level, Elaine, yes, there are an immense amount of answers on the internet. Absolutely. But you know, when it comes down to real brass tacks, bottom line simplicity, the answers that we seek are within ourselves. And I know that's almost cliched in the in the spiritual world. Uh, and I kind of understand that. But so let me put that in context. Context, the, the answers, you know, we can have all this amazing technology in the way the world's, you know, inverted commas, progressing, and we've all got our own views on whether it is or... But you know, when you take that away, the simple fact, first and foremost, before all these technologies, we're actually people, and we've got basic needs. You know, I've never met a computer that can, you know, like with Maslow, you know, and his, his hierarchy of needs, that can give me shelter. It can help me find shelter through a hotel or, or, or accommodation, but it can't give me shelter, it can't give me food, it can't give me warmth, it can't give me sex. The things that Maslow alluded to in, in our, you know, before we re- reach self-actualization, And similar with, with Robin's six human needs, you know, around the certainty, the uncertainty, the significance, the love and connection, the growth, the contribution. It may flirt with various aspects, but it can't because that those... Those things are met by us as people. First and foremost, we're people. We're human beings. We're vulnerable, but we are magnificent. And it's about investing in each other. I don't know about you, Paul, but I've I've found that it seems to be around the age of about 35 when we wake up to all this stuff. Um, I don't know if that's classed as the new midlife crisis. Um, that age sounds a bit too young for me for that, but um, it's about 35 where... I, I see people start to flourish. They start mm. to question life. You know, am I enjoying my career? Could I retrain? Is there something else that I should be doing? Um, and they start questioning around about the age of 35. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly from, um, you know, from a time from, as you say, um, as you've already highlighted, Elaine, with similar ages. Did I say 37? I was probably being a bit disrespectful there. <laughs> um, we'll say late 20s. Um yeah, I mean, from our, dare I say, our generation, I think that holds true. And I think on a superficial level, i.e., you know, looking for careers and, and stuff outside, I think that is still true. Where I would, I suppose, challenge that a little bit is certainly the conversations that um, that I have nowadays with, with younger people because there is this confusion, this pain um, in fact, it's so much more than pain because pain's actually good. Pain's a good lever, but it's pain plus pain plus pain equals suffering. And there is no merits at all in suffering for anybody. So I think in the main, yes, I would agree with that. When we look for externals, as I say, new job, new new relationship. But internally, I think that voyage of discovering is, is kicking off now at a far younger age. And I can sort of vouch for that with the conversations I have uh, as I say, with so many young people about who am I? You know, why is this happening to me? I, w- I want better than this. When I first got trained in behavioural profiling about 20 years ago, I and the reason I, I got trained in that was because um, at the time I was a chief operating officer with over 200 staff in a, in a corporation. And um, I could see that I could have done a whole lot better in supporting people and myself had I understood their behaviours better mm. and the chief executive that I reported into. So um, I got trained in this um, particular model, which is called the DISC model of behavioural profiling. 
And I started as a consultant with schools because I was identifying in the organisation I was in, it was about the age of 35 that they, these bright young things, it was um, uh, a very intellectual um, industry that I was in at the time. And um, these bright young things were demonstrating that they were actually square pegs in round holes. They weren't Mm. comfortable. They'd got all the intellect, they ticked all the boxes of what we needed, but they weren't comfortable. So I did some research and then I found that a lot of people go into careers for the wrong reasons. Um, They go into careers because their mum gets them an interview, their mate's gone into it uh, and so on and so forth, not because they've got a passion for whatever the thing is. And and we're forced at such a young age to make choices. And it still goes on today. My grand, my youngest grandson is 15 and he's had to make choices for topics to study for a career path. He's got no idea what he wants to do. Um, he, has, he has ideas and then he changes them, you know, perfectly natural mm. at that mm. age. So I think we're forced into paths and then you get all these rules. And, you know, he, he now can't... He can't drop a topic because it's in a bundle of topics that he's studying. Yeah. So um, because of, um, well, various different reasons, the school have now agreed that he can drop one of the topics. It's very clear that he doesn't have an aptitude for it. And, and that isn't good for the class. You know, it, it puts pressure on the teacher as well as everybody in, in the classroom. If you have a student there that's not, you know, with it, with it, sort of with the programme. So there's all these rules and regulations and... You know, as you said before, people don't, um, people weren't encouraged to question. We've now kind of gone the other way, where in some situations we've got um, these um, snowflake type of um, uh, attitudes where everything is, you know, it's here one minute, it's gone the next. Oh, do whatever you like. Oh, whatever you think is right. Yeah. And there's this, you know, equality and diversity and all these other labels and things mm. and i want to scream sometimes yeah. because you know you can't you can't so some some words and phrases that we grew up with were never meant to be derogatory they were just um of the time so you know things like some nursery rhymes and um um it 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 was it was the society we lived in at the time things have moved on and quite rightly so but we've gone completely the other way haven't we from having don't you know don't speak until you're spoken to put up and shut up sort of thing to yeah. anyhow goes yeah uh, that when you were speaking there Elaine that reminded me I've already alluded to people's college uh, in 91 and went whilst I was there I organized a, a football tournament five aside football tournament where the students play and and the staff, some of the staff played for 24 hours to raise money for three special needs school in Aspley. So as part of my sort of, uh, you know, my work, my coursework, I put together this pamphlet, this flyer, call it what you will. And I had the, uh, I used the word handicapped. And somebody anonymously went absolutely berserk. Now I'm going back to 91, as I say. And where that argument fell down very quickly then was all I would quoted was the the language that the schools themselves had used. They referred to themselves. Um, I think that the modern day term is, is you know is school for special needs. Um, but in those, it was like you know um, this we're dealing with handicapped uh, children. Well, students. we actually had the handicapped society, didn't we? Yeah. 
but the, you know, just to reinforce your point, this this person, and I never because I went nuts, and I said, you know what, whoever he or she is, they'd be better off getting some trainers off and kicking a ball with us, or putting a five or a tenner in the kitty, rather than sitting in some ivory tower judging about some word which actually has been chosen by the school. So I've only copied what they've what they put out there. They're you know they're the guiding light, not me. I'm only the messenger. But I thought that, you know, when you were speaking there, Elaine, that kind of reflected that that whole way of, oh, let, let's let's just debate for the sake of debating or let's sensationalise some, you know, some snowflake um, theory or whatever. It's, no, let's get real. Let's get back. And I don't sort of particularly subscribe to, you know, the, the majorism of um, going back to basics. But you know what? Let's get back to basics because that's what's missing, in my humble opinion. I quite agree. Well, the next song which you've chosen is called Miss Unites by Cliff Richard. Why did you choose that? That, yet again, is a kind of, um, I suppose, the legacy of my thoughts of spending endless nights in, in police cells and away from home through my misdemeanours because it's interesting when you, you know, you're in a cold... Uh, cold cell like that, that uh, your mind does wonder then to, yeah, well, if you behave yourself, you could be at home with your your wife and kids. Um, and it wasn't just about my wife and kids, it was just about all the stupid things I did through my conditioning, how I miss these amazing souls that uh, that I've already alluded to. Listening to Perfect Health on Elastic FM with Elaine Godley, and I'm joined in the studio today by the lovely Paul Lowe from Paul Lowe Hearts and um, speaking from our Hearts podcast. So, Paul, you've been talking about your life and how you've gone from victim mode now to very much loved up with the world yeah. and uh, loving yourself and um, all this stuff about you know the answers are inside us, and you help people to to find the love and the the purpose that's inside of everybody. So um, how did you get dry? Because you've been talking about your black and your white periods, six mm. months benders, and then you'd be six months dry and so yep. on and so forth. So you've been dry 10 years now? 10 years, it? yeah. So, so what, what was the change? What was the significant moment? Um, it was actually a celebration. Um, I'd got in with my present partner, um, and so I went on a, on a wild celebration. And I think it was my body's say, way of saying, actually... You, you've hammered this for far too long now. You know, you've been doing this for best part of 50 years, not far off 50 years. I, I, I'm not having it anymore. You've done it. And I'd been out on this sort of uh, few days. And, and, and as was my way, all or nothing. Boy, if you want to drink, let me show you how to drink. Um, and I actually was in, the, in a space where I thought I was going to die. It was that bad. I'm not on about just feeling rough through through drink. I'm on about, I honestly thought that my time had come. And uh, I think it was that realisation then that if I survive this, um, things will be different. And that was the universe's knockout punch to say, right, you've had your fun, now stop it. You've got a choice to make. At the time, I didn't know I'd got a choice, but I was kind of um, just clinging to this strength that somehow was inside although you know I was immensely weak because my body had basically just given up that um somehow knew I'd pull through it and I knew that when I did pull through it which eventually obviously I did 
things are going to be so different. And that was that knockout punch that said, right, okay, now get up off the canvas because you ain't drinking again. And I've had debates with people, um, you know, within the, uh, that do great work with people. And, you know, some of my uh, peers from the past have said, you know, even when I was drinking, how can you cut it dead? How can you just cut it dead? It's the worst thing you can do. And I did used to cut it dead. You know, I'd come off a six-month bender and I would literally, I mean, I'd be dying inside for days and days and days afterwards, cold turkey and everything. Um, but as I say, that was it really. And, you know, I say to people now when they'll say, oh, it's a day at a time, Paul. No, my life is a day at a time. My life is a moment at a time. But my drinking, I will tell you this, and I'll make this statement, whether experts agree or don't agree, I'm not looking for approval. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, torch the demon drink again. And I make that with 100% surety, which apparently goes against the, uh, you know, and I, and I don't want to get into a debate because, you know, a lot of these uh, alcohol agencies do amazing work for, for a lot of people. I'm certainly not questioning that. But I had my own way of, of dealing with things. And, um, you know, that's my story and I own it completely. Wonderful. And you you walk your talk day in, day out, don't you? I certainly try to. Try to, yeah. Um, you know, with my health, I've got a personal trainer in, in uh, Spain, trainer John. Brilliant guy. Not just about his training knowledge and his, his passion for that. But, you know, you talk about... Uh, walk in the walking lane. You know, the guy was 16 when he was serving in the Royal Navy. He was a kid from from Sheffield in Yorkshire. He was on HMS Sheffield. They got the call. By the there was in Gibraltar. By the way, we need you in the Falklands. It's kicked off. So he was on ship as a 16 year old. Shouldn't have been on ship because he was too young to serve. Um, and he was embroiled in war. And so, you know, I have some real um, in depth chats about life, philosophy, and. You know, uh, and I get a lot of inspiration from a lot of great people that, you know, to yet again, Elaine, use your terminology, a walk in the walk. And I will say I clash yourself amongst that uh, to be honoured to be in your company and what you actually do. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I really am. Thank you. So you and John have found yourself both in Spain. So where, where do you live in Spain and how, how did you get there? Uh, Torre Vieja is where we are. Uh, well, that's the general area. Um, John's been out there 13 years. He did 25 years um, in the Navy Stroke Marine Spoke, Stroke Special Services. Um, and obviously, you know, he come out and... Uh, John's actually written in in uh, one of my books. He does quite a bit of podcasting stuff around you know this identity because obviously coming out of um, an institution like that after twenty five years to say he'd lost his identity would be a massive understatement because obviously within the services everything's regimented uh, and he climbed the ranks and you know um, but. He'd gone from that very ordered, disciplined way of life in the service to Civvy Street, which was anything but. And the mindsets of people in Civvy Street, you know, and, you know, even now daily we have conversations about why don't people just do what's expected of them? Well, don't they understand that it complicates things? That If you start flying off at tangents doing your own thing, you're creating chaos within order. And I said, John, that's easy for you to say. Because you had 25 years of that, you know, that regimented, disciplined way. But that's not the way for so many other people. And he has readjusted now, but it's took him a long time. 
And, you know, um, interestingly, he'll often say to me when we train, he'll say, are you sure you've never been military? And I said, I've not been military. And he said, I'll go, he said, and I'd say special services. He said, because your mindset and your whole mentality is not what I would label a civic, civic guy. Your whole way of thinking and how you are and everything is so bang, 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 bang. It's, it's in its order. It's in its place. And I said, the thing is, John, the paradox with that is I can now operate that way because I've fought through all the chaos and I've understood what's important and what isn't. So all the clutter, all the chaos, all the confusion, I've stripped it right back. And I've got a very, what might appear to be a very, very simple, ordered way of carrying on. If that makes sense. I was just thinking that um, had somebody, a uh, mentor type of person, found you when you were having all your troubled teenage years, you could have ended up in the military and how different would your life have been? We probably wouldn't have been sitting here now, would we? I went to join the Royal Marines and got accepted when I was 19 years of age. I was all set to go down to Limston in Devon for training and I was I was courting a girl at the time. That's an old-fashioned term, isn't it? Mm. Courting. <laughs> could be worse, could be stepping out. Um, <laughs> um and what happened was we split up and at the same time I'd got this job come with the GPO, which the old post office, mm. which latterly become BT. So I ended up working as a, as a telecoms engineer. So I had this ingenious brainwave that, okay, what I'll do, I'll take this job short term on the GPO till I get my girlfriend back. And then when we're back together, we'll go down to Limpston and we'll start a new life together. So my first day on the tools, uh, and I was to say I was 19, as, and basically I was a mash lad, you know, and uh, the, the guy that they put me with was an ex-Royal Marine commando. And, of course, we got talking, you know, the ironies of life. Mm -hmm. And I was telling him, and he said, right, I've only known you a few hours. He said, I'm telling mm -hmm. you something now. You will regret what you've done. He said, I know the recruiting officer down, at, uh, down in Nottingham. He said... I'm going to drive you down there now. He said, do you still want to go in? Because I didn't get the girlfriend back and everything had gone belly up in that respect. So my plan was flawed, uh, as, as most of them were at that age anyway. And so we went back and, you know, uh, Jim and Derek, the two old sweats, kind of, oh, yeah, Jim, talking about, you know, the good old days. And uh, uh, the recruiting officer looked at me and uh, I could see he recognised me. And so he said, uh, right, Jim, what, what, what year for then? He said, uh, well, I've brought Paul back. Um, you know, he's made a bit of a mistake. You, you know the script. And he said, yeah, I do, Jim, and so do you. He said, I'm really surprised at you. He said, you know we are the cream of the cream. You only get one chance. He'd have been made. He'd have been absolutely made. We were hand in glove because we've had a good chat about his upbringing, his background, his life. We would have broke him and remade him. It was great. But you know, Jim, there's only one chance with us. There's the door. Bye. And that was it. Any regrets? I all, I do or did go through a, a phase, Elaine, of, of yes, having those regrets. But what, I've now, what I now know to be true, there's no point because I've got to say now that life's champions emerge because they learn, they learn to take the lessons from the pain from the past. You know, they, they take the lessons, let go of the pain from the past, but not the lessons learned. You know, and so life's champion. So a boxer, you know, a boxer will win a world championship by... You know, it's not going to go through that without having a broken nose or, or, or a broken bone or bruises or whatever. You know, there is pain. 
But he doesn't dwell on that pain. He doesn't dwell on that left hook that cut him or hurt him, or her for that matter, let's not discriminate, but learns lessons, takes the learning, but moves on. And I think that's a great one. So I think it's very easy for me to sit here now and say no, but the reality is, yes, the worst, particularly when I was getting myself in a lot of trouble because my mind invariably, well, I could have been serving now. I could probably have been a junior officer now uh, because so many people have told me over the years because of my mindset, that's who I was and would have become because I am very, very strong-minded, very actually, despite all my chaos of drinking and ending up on park benches and acting like a total loser that I did, that I was actually very disciplined and focused. You'd have been retired now, Paul. Yeah, with a big fat pension. And <laughs> I'd have been on Elaine's shows talking about you know my exploits all around the world, which ironically, I've had exploits around the world, but not in a military sense. Different battles. <laughs> Beautiful song there from uh, Etta James at last. So, uh, Paul, how did you actually get to live, be actually living in Spain? Because I think that's your main residence now, isn't it? Yeah, I spend most of my time there. Um, I'd sum that up as the power of intention, because for many years I was focused on on living in Spain. I just love. The uh, what really left um, this is a bit of a contradiction, but really left a deep-rooted um, desire within me was the the respect for the matriarchs, you know, the respect for the for the mother, the matriarch role model in, in Spain, you know, going to a restaurant and you know she she ruled the roost, and I love that old way of being, that respect, and and that left a very very deep. Um, had a very deep and profound effect on me. And I say that's contradictory in some ways because my biggest part of Spain was, how can I put this, spent in my colourful years um, in bars in Benidorm where just, let's say, the beer and the women flowed. So to have this kind of, well, what do you really value? I value the matriarchs and the way the Spanish culture is. And, and of course, the weather was, you know, had a big part. But essentially, the manana relax a bit. Well, why are you rushing around like a lunatic? Why are you doing that for? There's no point. Just relax. Let life be in flow. So there was always that sort of intention to live that life, even in the height of my chaos. Um, and eventually, um, when I got in with my present partner, um, it was actually... No such thing as coincidence. Um, but her mother lived in Spain and we made the decision after we'd been together uh, 12, 18 months, let's, let's just do it. Let's just go to Spain. And it just felt right. Um, it had probably been right for a number of years. Um, I know when I was with um, my previous fiancé, uh, it was always a passion of me then, but because of her health challenges, she you know, she was very much a career woman, a, a homely uh, only type of girl, and she, and she wouldn't do it. Um, that didn't lead to our, our breakdown, uh, or our parting, should I say. So, yeah, I think it was the power of intentions. I knew that one day I wanted to be, and I would be in Spain. How that would come about, I don't know. Um, and how it eventually come about, well, it you know, I won't say it just happened, because there's no, no such thing as coincidence. <laughs> but as I was reminded by somebody as recently as 10 days ago, uh, when she said, 
Paul, you like to say there's nothing, there's no, there's no such thing like coincidence. She said, you're wrong in a very forthright Manchester manner, bless her. And I said, right, Karen, tell me why. Tell me why I'm wrong, because even if I don't want you to, you're going to tell me anyway. Yes, I am. And she said, no coincidences. She said, but what we have is coincidences. And I thought that was a great way to put it. So when I say there's no coincidences in life, what we have is coincidences of energies, of people crossing paths. Our paths have crossed, Elaine, relatively recently. In other words, we have coincided with one another. I I see, I, I was taught many years ago that coincidence is a combination of opportunity and timing. Mm. And not everybody sees the opportunity and not everybody is in the right space at the right time. Yeah. So it is, yes, coincidence, absolutely. Yes. But um, opportunity and timing. And a lot of people go through life with their eyes closed and they don't yeah. see the opportunities around them. And sometimes people say to me, why are you doing this, that or the other thing? And sometimes I say, I don't know, but I just know it's the right thing to do. Yep. And then some wonderful, magical thing will happen. And then I'll, I'll know that trusting my intuition was the right thing to do. Yeah. Recently, I had, um, I've got a house guest and um, I said to her, I'm going to go up and meet this lady um, up the motorway. Would you like to come for a ride and, and uh, meet her? So she'd all know I'll stay in the car. So I said, no, it's not a meeting. I'm just meeting her. And she's, she's somebody that um, I don't know that very well, but mm. we, we've got on you know, well together and it'd be nice to catch up. We're just going to have a coffee. Mm. So um, she said, and then on the journey, she said, why, why are you going? I said, I don't know really. I said, but she's a nice girl and, you know, she's asked me. So, it, you know, it's a nice thing to do. So um, anyway, she, we went in, had coffee and natural as you do. And it turns out that the reason I went and, and thankfully, my house guest said, yes, she'd come with me. The reason was for her. So it turns out these two people, they both have the same Christian name as well, actually. Right. And they they both had so much in common. So the reason I went was actually for her. Yeah. You just never know, do you? You don't. I, I absolutely get it. And, you know, just when you were speaking there, Elaine, I was thinking about one of my approaches to, you know, I've, I've spoke what I now know and fervently believe to be the simplicity of life and I always say mastering life is as simple as ABC and what you're talking about there really is the the A, the awareness because if we don't know that opportunity is in front of our face but if we don't know and we're not aware or if the aerial is not plugged into the TV we're not going to get the signal exactly but, but the program's still out there being broadcast yeah yeah so opportunity and timing mm, for coincidence yeah yeah. Marvellous. Okay, when we were talking about songs for the for the show, um we both went, Oh, this is a lovely song, let's play this. Peter Sarsted, Where Do You Go To My Lovely? Um, many, many years ago, I think this was um nineteen sixty something, nineteen sixty nine, I think. Sixty eight, sixty nine, yeah. Yeah. It was a long, long time ago. So I would have been about twelve thereabouts. And I remember listening to this song and um, the old songs, we I don't know about you, but remember all the song, the, the lyrics to the songs? Yeah. And this is one of them that I remember yeah. um, with fondness. So here we go, Peter Sarsted. We've had some right slushy songs today. Oh, I'm with yours. Only sad <laughs> songs make you cry. <laughs> here we go, Peter Sarsted. In the world of There we are, and there he was gone, Peter Sarsted. Yes, all these old songs, they don't make them like they used to do, do they, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my grandma would say no. <laughs> uh, there we go. Is your grandma still around? No, no, she's been long since gone. 
Is this your mum? No, she died of lung cancer through heavy smoking. Uh, through um, she always said that um, you know part of the abuse of the the beast, her crutch, was obviously the drink, and and as she called it, her uh, uh, gaspers, the, the cigarettes, the fags. Mm. Yeah, that was her release. There we go. So. Um... Where are we going to go now? We've had, uh, I can't believe, Paul, it's nearly two hours. The show's gone just, just like that, absolutely flying by. So um, we've heard about your life, how you've gone from being um, a young lad with all sorts of um, issues and challenges, and you've come out the other side uh, many years later, dare I say, um, with um, a wonderful outlook on life and, and no regrets. You know, what, what what's happened to you has formed who you are today. Mm. So um, going forward, um, people can find you on your on your podcast, uh, Speaking From Our Hearts, on all the, the main podcast platforms, and also your website, paullowhearts.com. So how, how do you, how do you um, engage with, with clients? What sort of people would come to see you, Paul? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question because apparently, you know, within um, – particularly within the personal development injuries, we're supposed to have an avatar, brackets, our ideal client. And and I don't buy into any of that because what I say is um, people find each other. I can remember at the height of my drinking, I, I crossed this guy in the street and we, as we passed, we kind of looked at each other, two total strangers. And as we passed each other, we both turned around and, and looked at each other. Um, and this guy sort of said... Um, you okay, mate? I said, yeah, I'm okay. And he said, you're a drinker, aren't you? And I said, yeah. Do you fancy a drink? Yeah. And that was it. I mean, we were, you know, we really hit it off because I think people find people. I think energies attract energies. So in terms of, you know, how do people find me? um, I think situations present themselves. I don't massively market. I think word of mouth is a, you know, um, is a great um, vehicle for, for connecting people, I massively understand, believe, and embrace the power of relationships, mutuality, sharing that energy, sharing that passion. Um, so yes, I mean you've already alluded to the um, you know the uh, uh, the podcast speaking from our hearts podcast, Elaine. And, and interestingly, just to kind of reinforce my point, there's a movement that I'm putting together at the moment called Change the World. Um, there's this American guy called Mark. Mark Hoy, um, who wrote a book called Lasting Happiness. Um, and within that, Mark has got this massive infectious passion to just leave the world a better place. You know, we spoke earlier on about Stephen Covey and his seven habits. Well, his eighth habit was leave the world. Sorry, his ninth habit. I get mixed up with his eight. His ninth, leave the world a better place. His eighth habit was actually find your voice and inspire others to find theirs. So, um, you know, we share that. So we found each other. You know, I, t- I interviewed him about his new book, um, Lasting Happiness, and we just connected, you know. Um, so I think that's a great example of, you know, people will just find people if it's meant to be. It's amazing, isn't it, how how it works? I I get every week I get people private messaging me who I don't know, and they say my 
so-and-so friend, whoever it is, has recommended I speak to you. And then they get this, I get this great long message about how somebody they're close to has got cancer and um, could I help them? And mm. I don't know these people at all, but they just they just find me, which is which yeah. is wonderful. It's very humbling, yeah. and it's nice to, as you say, leave the world a better place. And um, I have this saying: if I don't wake up in the morning, I shall be very cross. Um, but I know that when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I've done the best I can, and I've not knowingly upset or hurt anybody. I've I've just been me. I've done the best I can. I've had a nice day. I've enjoyed myself, and I hope I wake up in the morning to do it all again. But if I don't, well. You know the time's come, and, and there we are. Yeah, and 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 if I can just be allowed to, because I know we're coming towards the end, uh, Elaine. But if I can just be allowed to add, you asked a question earlier on about you know what message would you leave, um, and it would be this that you know, and I've already said it, but I'll just give give very briefly a, a you know further insight and reinforcement into life is as simple as. As, as mastering life is as simple as ABC. We've already touched on the awareness because you don't know what you don't know. So be prepared to go on a vo- voyage of discovery. Learn new things. And the B, and this is the massive one, is the beliefs. If a belief is not serving you, change it. And it is as simple as that. And it took me decades to learn that very simple lesson. And the C is creativity. Learn to think different ways you know, if your present way of thinking is not serving you, which is tied into you, but change it. Be more creative. Look at things from a, I know, you know, don't like that modern day term of think outside the box. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is think outside the box. And by, by doing those three things, put a line in the sand. What do I know now? Where am I starting from on this journey? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't compare yourself to others because there are always going to be people that are further on and further behind. It's not a race. It's not a competition. And if you if you compare, you're going to set yourself up for failure. So just draw a line in the sand of life and say, OK, I'm going to go forward. I might only go forward at half a millimeter a month, but at least I'm going forward. So life is as simple as ABC. Wonderful. So um, moving forward then, um, your podcasts cover what topics? Um, Essentially health, which is the very foundation, I believe, because without our health and, you know, I'm into your territory now, Elaine, you know far more about this than I do. Um, The health, um, the others for relationships, relationships are absolutely key. And the most important one is the relationship with ourselves, and then the wealth and I don't necessarily mean in a financial sense either. You know, that wealth of what we've got in our life, that emotional wealth. Um, so they, for me, they all sit very tightly together. And H-O-W actually spells how. So when people say, you know, let's go on a journey, journey of change, how? And I've said, you've just given the answer. It is exactly how. Health, others and wealth. Marvellous. So we've come to the end of the show, Paul. Thank you so much for keeping me company this afternoon. Always a pleasure and delight to speak with you. And um, anybody wants to get hold of Paul, it's paullowhearts.com or look for Paul Low on the podcast platforms. So um, we're just going to sign off now with a song, another appropriate one, Eternal Flames. So we hope to be eternal flames, don't we? Oh, we do Hope our message uh, will (laughs) go on after, long after we've we've gone. We we will leave a legacy in our our own individual ways. So uh, thank you again, Paul Lowe. And uh, thank you for listening to uh, Perfect Health on Elaine, no, Perfect Health on Elastic FM with Elaine Godley. And I'll see you next week. Have a fantastic week. Bye for now. (laughs) 